0: Bow for prayer, please. Our Father and our God, we are grateful for the opportunity once again to be gathered as your people to once again sit under the sound of your word. Ask your blessings, Father, upon your word to our hearts today. And we pray, Lord, that your word would meet with responsive hearts And that not only that, Father, but that we may leave this place with a determination in our hearts to do as thou hast said. So we commit this time to you, and we ask your blessings. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. A message like this wasn't planned because of 9-11. I guess the Lord probably planned it that way, but I certainly didn't. Um, From Genesis to Revelation, the scriptures abound with many, many experience of suffering saints. And yet, suffering still remains a mystery, a deep and profound mystery to the people of God. And nowhere is this mystery more evident and most profound Than in the book of Job. In fact, the principal message of the book of Job is the mystery of suffering. There are some other themes, but that's one of the principal messages of the entire book of Job. The principle or the mystery of suffering. And even though the book does not solve the problem of why the righteous suffer. What it really does... Is it gives us some welcome light on the authorization of pain and suffering, as we'll see as we look at some of the things that Job experiences in the passages today. Job's suffering was not only a test, but it was also something that was very revealing of character. Job's character. As well as the character of his friends who came to console him. And it's intended to do a couple of things for us. To instruct us. To educate us. And to actually teach the Christian how to die to self. Because if there's anything that Job teaches us, that's one of the things that stand out most. How to die to self. We will see that, especially as Job's friends... Uh, speak, try to speak words of comfort to him. One of the passages that stand out most to us when we think about Job is a key passage, uh, primarily of the book of Job, verse 21 of chapter 1. And whenever people mention Job, this is the verse that comes to mind more than anything else. It's, it's, it's synonymous with Job's name. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And you know, Christians today must experience life just like Job did. One day at a time. Without all of the complete answers that we would so much like to have. To all of the questions that perplex us during the times of our lives. The big, we probably say the billion dollar question is. Will we trust God completely? Regardless of what happens to us like Job did. Or will we surrender to temptation? And simply say that God really doesn't care. And just grin and bear it. What will we do? What are the lessons that we can learn from Job's life and his mysterious suffering experience? We're going to try to look at some of those lessons this morning. Now the first five verses of chapter 1 tells us who Job was. And as we will see, Job's friends... The idea of wisdom differs a whole lot from Job's. In fact, Job's source of wisdom was from God. And Job believed that this, the first step toward wisdom was to fear God. Job's attitude toward God was is that God is the one who reveals wisdom. And those who humbly trust him will receive that wisdom. Now we'll see that Job's pr- friends had a different idea uh, f- from about where wisdom came from, as well as a different attitude toward God with regards to their wisdom. And so in chapter 1, verse 1, we have the story of Job. What kind of man he was. There was once a man named Job who lived in the land of Uz. He was blameless, a man of complete integrity. And you could underline complete there. He feared God and stayed away from evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, ten children. He, he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, five 500 teams of oxen, and 500 female donkeys. He also had many servants. He was, in fact, the richest person in that entire area. Job's sons would take turns preparing feasts in their homes, and they would also invite their three sisters to celebrate with them. When these celebrations ended, sometimes after several days, Job would purify his children. He would get up early in the morning and offer burnt offerings for each of them. But Job said to himself, perhaps my children have sinned, have cursed God in their hearts. This was a regular practice for Job. And so verse 5 gives us the first lesson to be learned from Job's life. And all, all before his suffering even started. A parent's deep concern for the spiritual welfare of their children. That was the way Job was before all the suffering came into his life. Now some people only can find God when disaster hits or tragedy strikes. Job was a spiritual man and he had spiritual concerns for his children long before tragedy came into his life. And that's the first thing we learn from Job's story. Parents today can show the same kind of concern by praying for their children. This is a lesson that we can learn from Job. Before, suffering ever started. This means making a sacrifice of time every day. Sometimes parents are so busy that they just don't have the time to pray for their children. And then when problem strikes, they find themselves on their knees before God. Well, Job tells, teaches us that we need to find the time to pray for our children before tragedy strikes. Making time every day, asking God for primarily about four things. Protect them. Many people don't pray for their children's protection until they find themselves in trouble. Forgive them of their sins. Help them grow spiritually and help them live lives that are pleasing to God. Many parents today will probably tell you that they regret that they haven't done some of these things. Because the children are now in trouble. verse 6 we find one day the members of the heavenly court came to present themselves before God. And the accuser, Satan, came with them. According to scripture, God often convened these heavenly councils. uh, Where the angels of God would come and they would discuss the activities of earth. And talk about things that were happening on earth or were about to happen on earth see, angels are required to give an account of themselves. Their boss may be Satan, but they have to give an account to God for all that they do. And we need to be mindful of that because they can't do whatever they feel like doing, especially in the lives of the people of God. One such counsel we find recorded in 1 Kings chapter 22. Now, before we get to verse 19, you need to understand what happened before verse 19. Uh, King Jehoshaphat and uh came together with King Ahab, and uh, they were having a discussion one day. And um, King Ahab said, you know, uh, ramoth gilead belongs to Israel. You know, we, it's, our, it's our town. We really should try to get it back. And so uh, he said, you know, if I go to battle, will you help me? And uh, King Joshua said, yeah, oh, no problem, man. My horses are your horses. My army is your army. So I'll help you. But first, uh, don't you think we should find out what God says? And so they called 400 prophets together. And they asked the prophets, if we attacked Ramoth Gilead, will we be victorious? Will God give us victory? And all of the prophets said, yeah, man, sure, go ahead, no problem, you're going to win. Well, King Jehoshaphat was kind of a wise man. He said, well, shouldn't we hear what a prophet of God has to say? And uh, he says, do you know a prophet of God that we can ask the same question to and find out what he says? And Ahab's response is, well, there's a fellow named Micaiah, but I hate him because he never prophesies. All he does is prophesy is trouble for me. I don't want to hear from him. And, uh, the, the king, Joshua said, well, as a king, you shouldn't be saying things like that, but let's hear what he has to say. And that brings us to verse 19. They call Micaiah... Uh, and, and this is a dialogue. Then Micaiah continued, Listen to what the Lord says. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne with all the armies of heaven around him, on his right and on his left. And the Lord said, Who can entice Ahab to go into battle against Ramoth Gilead so he can be killed? There were many suggestions. And finally a spirit approached the Lord and said, I can do it. How will you do this? The Lord asked. And the spirit replied, I will go out and inspire all of their prophets to speak lies. You will succeed, said the Lord. Go ahead and do it. So you see, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouths of all your prophets. For the Lord has pronounced your doom. That's the 400 prophets who said, yeah, go ahead, you're going to win you see, since God created all angelic beings, both evil and good, those who serve God and those who rebel against God, he has absolute power and authority over all of them. And so they have to respond to him. And then Look at verse 7. Where have you come from, the Lord says to Satan? Satan answered, I have been patrolling the earth, watching everything that's going on. And the Lord asked Satan, have you noticed my servant Job? He's the finest man in all the earth. He's blameless. A man of complete integrity. He fears God and stays away from evil. Now notice, it wasn't Satan who brought Job into the issue. It was God. When God praised Job's blamelessness. And his upright character, signifying what a greatly blessed man he was. Job became an ideal or a prime target for Satan. This brings us to the second lesson we learn from Job's mystery of suffering. Anyone who is seriously committed about living for God should expect Satan's attacks for the simple reason that God, Satan hates God's servants just as much as he hates God. And so if you're serving God, it's something to expect. Satan hates you. If Satan could do to God what he did to Job, he would have been elated. So he can't, since he can't do it to God, he's going to do it to those who love God, those who serve God. Verse 9 Satan replied to the Lord, yes. But Job has got reason to fear you, fear God. You've always put a wall of protection around him, and his home, and his, and his property. You've made him prosper in everything he does. Look at how rich he is. But reach out and take away everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. All right, you may test him, the Lord said to Satan. Do whatever you want with everything he possesses. But don't harm him physically. So Satan left the Lord's presence. Now, there are a couple of things that we, we see when we look at this dialogue between God and Satan. That would really clear up some misconceptions in our minds about who Satan really is, about his character, about what he does, and what he's capable of doing, what he can and cannot do. When we look closely, we see that uh, verse 6, the first thing we learned Verse 6 tells us he is accountable to God, as all good as well as evil angels are. They are duty-bound to present themselves to God. Whether they want to or not, they have to. Because Satan may be the boss, but God is the bigger boss. And they've got to answer to him. And then the second thing uh, uh, we learn from uh, this dialogue is in verse 6. Which tells us that Satan can only be at one place at a time. You see, his demons are extremely loyal to him. And they make it appear as if he's omnipresent like God is. But he's not. He's just as limited as every other created being. Because that's what he is. And then uh, the third thing we learn from this dialogue is in verses 9 through 11. Which tell us that Satan cannot read our minds or tell the future. Sometimes we think about what Satan does and we get the impression that he can read our minds or he can foretell our future. What's going to happen to us? But he can't. If he could, he would have known at the outset that Job would not buckle the, under any amount of pressure that was put on him. If he could tell the future. If he could read our minds, he would have known that. And then the fourth thing is in verse 12. Which tells us that Satan cannot be, he cannot do Anything. Anything, someone said nothing, N-U-T-T-I-N, he can't do nothing, nothing without God's permission. Everything that he does, he has to get God's approval. And we see that when we look at his, his, his confrontations with God with regards to Job. God gave him step by step what he could do and what he could not do. So he can't do anything without God's permission. And the people of God, through the power of God, can defeat him. You have the power. The Bible reminds us that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And Job is going to teach us that. Verse 12 also tells us that God limits what Satan can do. Verse 7 is a sobering reminder of how real and active Satan is in this world in which we live. And how we need to be careful and cautious of how Peter reminds us that he's like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And we ought to be vigilant. Sobering reminder of what he does and what he's doing. And this brings us to our next lesson we learned from the mystery uh, of suffering in Job's life. And this kind of knowledge about Satan should be enough to keep every blood believer clinging even closer to the one who is greater than Satan himself. And that is the triune God. When we look at what Job went through, we ought to be drawn closer to God by trusting him for his protection. Even though Job was a model of faith and obedience to God, God allowed Satan to viciously assault him. God allowed that. Satan wasn't doing what he felt like doing to Job. God gave him permission to do it. This brings us to the next lesson. That we learn from Job's life and experience in suffering. While God loves us, believing and obeying him does not protect us from the disasters of life. Some people believe it does. It doesn't. Sorrows, setbacks and tragedies hit both Christians and non-Christians in the same way. And if you think back about experiences that you have heard of, you would agree. Some things that happen to some unbelievers happen to believers in the same way. But when we are tested and tried, God expects us to respond. How? By communicating our faith to the world. Not our misery. Not our disapprovement. Not our disapproval of what God is doing. But our faith. What is your response when trouble comes knocking at your door? How do you respond? What do you do? What do you say? What do you think? Like the faithless, do you ask God, why me? You know many people ask that question? See, that fellow down, down the road, living like the devil. And I'm the one who's catching hell. Why don't you go and beat up on him? Why me, Lord? Why are you picking on me? Is that the response you give? A faithless, the response of the faithless? Or do you ask God, or do you respond like the faithful and say, Use me, Lord. Use me through this experience. What is your response when troubles come? But this dialogue between God and Satan also teaches us uh, a vital truth. About God. but who He is. His character. God is completely alert regarding every effort by Satan to bring disasters and difficulties on the people of God. God is not an absentee God. He knows exactly what's going on with regards to Satan and the people of God. He's not too busy. On 9-11 10 years ago, He was not too busy. To know exactly what was going on with those who died in that catastrophe who were people of God. He is absolutely alert. Although God may not may allow us to suffer for reasons we are unable to understand, our troubles never, ever, ever, ever catch us by surprise. And you know what? He's always compassionate. Always. No matter what we go through, he is a compassionate God. Verse 13. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting in the older brother's house, a messenger arrived at Job's home with this news. Your oxen were plowing and the donkeys were feeding beside them when the Sabaeans raided us. They stole all the animals, killed all of the farm hands. I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger arrived with this news. a fire of of God from heaven, fire from heaven, burned up the sheep and all the shepherds. Some believe this was lightning. Boy, there must have been some lightning to strike and kill 7,000 sheep. I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, a third messenger arrived with this news. Three bands of Chaldean raiders have stolen your camels and killed your servants. And I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger arrived with this news. Your sons and daughters were feasting in the, in the older brother's home. Suddenly a powerful wind swept, whether a tornado or, or a hurricane, swept in from the wilderness and hit the house on all sides. On all sides, the house collapsed. And all your children are dead. I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. What do you think Job's response was to all of this? One blow after the other. And I think the last one is what, what really hit him hardest. And those of you who are parents, you know how it is when you, uh, you are concerned about your children. And perhaps they are away. I remember when Ryan was in school, Ryan had uh, 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 just graduated from the Turner University. And we had gone to the graduation and he stayed behind to, to, to take his, his, uh, his exams for his FAA license. And... Uh, he was driving home. He was anxious to get home. You know, Ride is a homeboy. Loves home. And he was anxious to get home. And he was driving along on the highway. It was a 20 hour drive from Texas to Florida. And we drove it, he drove it many, many times with his roommate, uh, whenever they had breaks. And I remember I was in Coswright when I got a, when I got a call on my cell phone from Allison Cook, now Sands. But Allison called me and she said, Andolino, Ryan's roommate, is trying to reach you. I said, what happened? He said, Ryan had an accident. And you know what happened then, right? My heart sank. And she said quickly, but he's okay. The car was totaled, but he was okay. He was so hurried to get home that he fell asleep at the wheel, ran off the road and hit a road sign. Total the car. When he finally got a and Andy said, you know, call the tow truck. Let him carry it to the dump. The car was wrecked. So we parents know how it feels when we get this kind of news that Job got. But how would you respond? Look at verse 20. Job stood up, tore his robe in grief. Then he shaved his head and fell to the ground and started hollering and wallowing and screaming and cursing God. Is that what happened? What did he do? He worshipped. He worshipped. That verse that is synonymous of his name. I came from my mother's womb naked. I came from my mother's womb and I will be naked when I leave. The Lord gave me what I had and the Lord has taken it away. Praise the name of the Lord. In all this. Job did not sin by blaming God. Now remember what Satan said. Satan said you take away what he, what he has and he will do what? Curse you to your face. You see what Satan expected was for Job to do exactly what he said. For Job to get down and start with a piece of cussing on God that he would never believe that he was a man of integrity. But it didn't happen. It didn't happen. Job fell on his face and he worshipped God. Job's grief. Was extremely overwhelming. But he didn't hide it. The one thing that Job didn't lose. Was his faith in God. He may have been a a super saint. When he lived his life. But he also showed that he had emotions. He showed that he was human. He had emotions. He loved his family. And he expressed it. In the way that God gave him the ability to do so. This next lesson we learn from his experience. Our emotions were created by God himself. All those emotions. Some people say, oh, I'm such an emotional person. And they they talk about it as if they're ashamed of it. But listen, God gave you the emotions you have. He created them. And Job teaches us that, that God created these emotions that I have, and I'm going to express them. It's not sinful. It's not wrong to express our emotions like Job did. For a profound loss or a major distress or a heartbreak or some kind of tragedy have impacted your life, admit it. Some people are in denial when it happens. Admit it to yourself, first of all, and get out of, in, out of denial. And then admit it to others. And of course, by all means, grieve. Because God would like us to do that. He would want us to do that. Jesus grieved. Remember, Jesus looked over Jerusalem and he wept. That was grief. God created that grief. Even though Satan's first. God approved. Test. Resulted in the loss of Job's possessions. And his family. His reaction. Was unique to say the least. It was not the kind of reaction. That you would expect from a man. Who had just lost everything. Wasn't the the, the response. The reaction that, that Satan expected. Job. Instead of crying, why me? Like many people do when tragedies strike. Job could have done that. Job acknowledged God's sovereignty over every single thing that he had and that he had lost. Because he realized that, listen, all of this came from God. He gave it. And he has the the right to take it away whenever he feels like, however way he feels like doing it. See, we get so attached to some things in our lives that we think that it's all ours. And when it's taken away, we blame God. And we do exactly what God, what Satan expected Job to do. We curse God. We may not do it verbally, but in our hearts we're thinking about it. Satan was defeated in round one. Job won round one by proving that people can love God because of who he is instead of what he gives. Now, from Satan's point of view, there wasn't supposed to be a round two. There was only supposed to be one round. A TKO. Round one. It didn't happen. He had to go back to the drawing board. Then the Lord asked Satan, Have you noticed my servant Job? He's the finest man in all the earth. He's blameless. A man of complete integrity. He fears God and stays away from evil. And get this. And he has maintained his integrity. Even though you urged me to harm him without a cause. God said to Satan, "Look, Satan, ain't cha- Job ain't changed. He's the same man today as he was yesterday, in spite of what he's gone through." Satan, like a dog between his legs, like like a dog with his tail between his legs, said, hmm, "Skin for skin. A man will give up everything he has to save his life." But you reach out and, t- and take away his health and he'll surely curse you to your face. In other words, he'll surely you curse you out this time. You touch his skin. You touch his body. He'll surely curse you out this time. All right. Do with him what you please, the Lord said to Satan. But spare his life. Don't you put a finger on his life. Again. Satan can only do what God allows him to do in the life of the child of God. He can't do whatever he pleases. He's got to get permission. Everything that Satan does to the believer is what I call father filtered. God filters it. Some of you got a filter on your your water system. What does it do? It takes out all of the impurities, right? Right? Well, everything that the child of God faces is father filtered It goes through God first, before it gets to us. Isn't that reassuring? Remember in verse 1 and 12, God said to Satan, uh, don't hurt them physically. But now God is allowing it. So this dialogue prompts the question, is, is it possible for Satan to convince God to change his mind? That's what it looks like, eh? Doesn't it? Absolutely not. Satan cannot convince God to do anything, much less go against his own character, which is totally and eternally good. That's God's character. Totally and eternally good. He can't do anything wrong. So Satan was fully convinced that Job was prepared to accept the loss of his family and his property... Probably as long as his skin was okay. As long as his body was, as long as his health remained the same. He was safe. So his next move was to put a serious piece of hurting on Job. That was his next move. Through physical suffering. Extreme physical suffering. To prove how right he was in chapter 1 verse 9. That Job was only serving God because of what he could get from God. Just like many people do today. You know there are a lot of people who are only serving God because of what they can get from God? When disaster strikes, bush crack, man gone. They don't know God no more. And there are many people like that today. God. Was only willing to go along with Satan's plan because he knew the end of the story. And God always knows the end of the story of our lives when we are going through sufferings. Not because we don't know. mean that we should get upset with God. And do what Job anticipated Job would do. That brings us to lesson, the next lesson of Job's mystery of suffering. Satan cannot fool God. Now Satan was a wise being, and because he was so smart, he was too smart for his own good. He th- he thought that he could pull the wool over God's eyes. The suffering Job experienced was an orchestrated test for Job, Satan, and us, not God. God was not being tested here. But look at verse chapter two, verse seven. So Satan left the Lord's presence, and he struck Job with terrible boils from the head from head to foot. Job scraped his skin with a piece of broken pottery as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, are you still trying to maintain your integrity? Curse God and die. Now, the interesting question is, why didn't she die with everybody else? If she's going to talk to the man like this after all he's gone through, kind of, you want to kind of think, well, you know, why didn't she go with the rest? You know, some, we don't know why, but some people believe that this very statement by her was a part of inflicting some more suffering on Job. This is the woman who Job loved, and she enjoyed all of the bounty of Job's life, and for her to say something like this, it was really, it was really hard, but we don't know. But Job replied, you talk like a foolish woman. Should we accept only good things from the hand of God and never anything bad? And again, the Bible reminds us. So in all this, Job said nothing wrong. He didn't level any kind of accusation or implication against God for what God had done. Or what God had allowed to to, to happen in his life. You see, some people believe that Trouble can't touch them as long as they believe in God. So when disaster strikes, there is the question of whether really, whether God is really a good God. Whether God is is really a just God. Because He let this happen to me. And I could think of a million other people that this could happen to who deserve it. And He let this happen to me. What kind of God He is? That's what people think. Who believe that because they're serving God, trouble can't touch them. They're untouchables. And if you listen to some of these religious programs we have on our radios today, you get the message. There are many people who believe that. And God help it if if something happens to you. Because they'll tell you straight up in front. You didn't believe in God in the first place. That's why it happened to you. But this brings us to the next lesson. There's absolutely no reason why we should give up on God because he allows us to suffer through bad experiences. No reason. Personal prosperity is not guaranteed because of faith in God, even though some people teach that. They teach that personal prosperity is a guarantee because you have faith in God. Nor does lack of faith guarantee a life filled with troubles. Some people will tell you, boy, you're you, you catching hell because you don't have no faith. One fellow said to me one day, boy, I could have faith for me, but I can't have faith for you. You need to have your own faith. And so we would, we would have no opportunity to grow if we always knew why we were suffering. Would we have a room to grow if we always knew why we were suffering? We wouldn't. And so that's one of the lessons we learn from Job's experience. There are people who believe in God simply to get rich. We see them all the time on that, on that station. Right? They are, and they're always talking about it big and bold. But God was not one of them. But Job was not one of them. God is fully able of rescuing his people. He's fully capable of rescuing his people when he wants to from suffering. But sometimes he allows us to suffer for reasons that we can't understand. And he is not obligated to explain it to us. And we see that in Job's case. But it's in those times when Satan tries to get us to doubt God. When you're going through those trials and those difficulties and those sufferings that you can't understand. Then then Satan sneaks up on you and says, see? That's the kind of God you serve. Look what he, look, look, look what he let happen to you. And you in church every Sunday. You at prep meeting every Saturday. And look what he, look what he allowed to happen to you. He gets you, he tries to get you to doubt God. Instead of seeking his own personal comfort like the narrow-minded who, the, the, the narrow-minded, what do we call them? Name it and claim it crew. Job shows us an even wider, much broader perspective. A, a wider point of view is what Job teaches us here. Look at verse 11, chapter 2. When three of Job's friends heard of the tragedy he had suffered, they got together and traveled from their homes to comfort and console him. Their names were Eliphaz the Timonite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite. Job's three friends had, had a reputation for being wise. They were known as wise men where they came from. Everybody looked at them as, as being the ones that you could go to when you needed some wisdom. Later we learned that their words of comfort felt comfort far short of what it should have been. But, you say, at least they came. They came, right? The only problem was they were so self-righteous about the advice they gave and so insensitive to Job's needs that they did a real poor job of comforting Job. As Job will, as Job will tell them as we, as we move on, they didn't give him the kind of comfort that he needed. Verse 13 is one of the things that all of them did right. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and nights. No one said a word to Job, for they saw that his suffering was too great for words. And this is a custom, this was a, a customary Jewish tradition, and, and we, we still observe it today. Uh, a couple of years ago, I was out and uh, I was about to cut the hedge in the front of my yard, and there was a car park near the fence, so I couldn't get my ladder there to get up on it to cut. Uh, but I noticed the day before there were some people who were, uh, who were gathering across the street at my neighbor's house, and uh, there were a lot of people coming. There were a lot of cars. It was highly unusual. I'd never seen this amount of people at those people's houses at any given time. And so I said, "Boy, they must, they must be getting ready for a big party or something." And so I went out there. To, 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 to ask the neighbor whose car was it in front of my, my yard. I needed it moved so I could get Miladin to cut the hedge. And just as I was approaching, the neighbor in that house where everybody was gathering was at the gate of the other neighbor next door. She was speaking to her. And as I walked out and I started to approach her, she came toward me. And she said, Mr. Pears, I don't know if you, if you, if you know this, but the man who got stabbed to death last night was my husband. Whoa! That hit me like a mock truck. I didn't expect that. I didn't even hear, I didn't even hear the news. This is the first time that I was hearing it. But those people were gathering for that purpose. They were just sitting there. They bought extra chairs and they were just sitting on the porch. And this is the custom that Job's friends came, uh, to do with him. And it's one that continues today. They realized when they saw Job, And the condition that he was in, the deep pain and misery that he was experiencing, they knew that uh, there was no words that they could express to give him comfort. All they could do was just sit there. And of all three of these friends of Job, the only one thing they did right to comfort Job was to sit in silence with him. As we look at these passages, you'll see that nothing else they did really did anything to comfort Job. And that brings us to the next lesson. Respond to those in need by being sensitive, but be sensitive about what you say and what you do when offering comfort. Sometimes it's not spiritual insight and quotations or quoting scripture, but sympathetic silence and loving companionship from those who care, whose care, who cares about what all that hurting friends needs. Or all that a hurting friend needs at that particular point in time. At last Job spoke. And he cursed the day of his birth. But he did something else in verse 8. Let those who are experts at cursing. You ever thought that they were experts in cursing? Whose cursing could arouse Leviathan, curse that day. Not only did he curse the day that he was born, but he said, boy, I wish those, those experts in cursing could just curse the day I was born. The second test of Job's physical affliction brought about a, a change in attitude. Much different from the first test. You see, in Job's day, there were persons who, whose, repu, whose, whose occupation was cursing. And that's why he says, experts. That's all they did. Remember the story of Balaam and Balak? They were experts at cursing. That was their job. That was their vocation in, in Job's day. Sort of like Obear today. You know, there are people who, who, who work old Bear, and they said, Man, that person, he messed me up. I want you to go work with something on him. There are people who do that. Well, they were expert cursers in that day. And Job says, why don't this, why don't someone call for these expert curses to curse the day that I was born? Job wished that that would happen. And well, it tells us that, that, that Job was not only struggling with his physical affliction, but he was also struggling emotionally and spiritually as well. He was experiencing what you might want to call all encompassing deep misery. Is what he was going through. Next lesson. We learned from that. When we're overwhelmed by pain and suffering, we must not take our weakness too lightly. Even if there's no relief in sight, we must, we must hold on to our faith. That's what Job teaches us here. Job is holding on to his faith. Job never imagined that he would be in this kind of a condition what had happened why wasn't I born dead why didn't I die as I came from the womb you can hear the anguish in Job's statement but let me ask you can you really blame Job for wishing he was dead how many of you have been in such a condition medically that you wish the Lord would just call you home anybody ever been there I mean you were so sick probably was poisoned what dengue real bad. I've heard some people talking about how bad the dengue was. And someone said, Well, you don't want to have it. You don't want your worst enemy to get it. But this is where Job was. He wished that he was dead on top of the intense physical pain he was experiencing. He was also grieving because he had lost his family and he had lost his lost his life's work, his possessions. Job was put at the very crossroads of his faith by his grief. That's where he was. All of his ideas about God up to this point. About how God blesses with wealth. About how God shelters us from pain and and difficulties. And how God keeps our loved ones so safe by putting a hedge of protection around them. All of those ideas about God were nothing more than shattered misconceptions about God now in Job's mind. All of this brought Job back to the basics of his faith. And at at times, that's what needs to happen in our lives. It brought him back to the basics of his faith, giving him only two options. There's two choices. He could just give up by cursing God to his face like like, like Satan expected him to do. And just wait for God to strike him down with lightning and kill him. That was one choice. But the other choice was he could draw strength from God. By continuing to trust him. In other words, instead of running away or pulling away from God. He could run to God and embrace him for the strength that he needed. I know when I was growing up and I was I was about to get beaten, uh, my mother would come with the belt and instead of running from her, I would run to her. Why? I'd run, put my arms around her legs and hold her. Ever did that? I know some of you all did that. Hold her so that she couldn't step off high enough to get leverage to spring that belt. That was a smart move. Well, this is what God wants us to do. To draw closer to God and embrace Him. Verse 23. Why is life given to those with no future? Those God are surrounded with difficulties. I cannot eat for sighing. My groans pour like water. What I always feared has happened to me. What I dreaded has come true. I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest. Only trouble comes. With all his wealth, all of the material possessions that Job had. Job was very, very careful during his lifetime that he only worshipped God and not the possessions that God gave him. But that puts him in a real funny position now because now his overwhelming disasters seem to be making a mockery of the cautious life that he had lived. He's in a quandary. What you call it between the proverbial rock and a hard place? Despite living right for God all his life, he's still devastated. He complains. I mean, I did everything right by the book. I crossed all my t's and dotted all my i's, and this still happened to me. Because all of the values he lived by were falling to pieces. Joe was beginning to lose perspective. What was he losing? He was losing sight of the fact that regardless of how brief or long time grief and trials may last, they don't really destroy the real purpose of life. He was losing perspective of that. He was also losing sight of the fact that, that God does not give us life simply for happiness and personal fulfillment, but to serve and honor Him. He believed that all his life. Now that was starting to go out of the window. He was also losing sight of the fact that our feelings is not the basis of life's value and importance. Instead, it's one certainty that cannot be taken or shaken. The love of God for us. He was beginning to lose, lose sight of that. That was starting to, to be lost in the shuffle. The dilemma of his sufferings. Bring us to the next lesson. Never make the assumption that God will always protect you from suffering because of how much he loves you. Never make that assumption. Why? Because how much... Because suffering cannot be measured by... Because his love cannot be measured by the extent of our suffering. We must almost remember the teaching of Romans 8, 38, 38 39. Nothing. Absolutely Nothing. Can separate us from the love of God. In Christ Jesus. Then Eliphaz the Temanite replied to Job. I will be patient and let you say a word. For who could keep from speaking out? In the past you have encouraged many people. You have strengthened those who were weak. Your words have supported those who were falling. You encouraged those with, with shaky knees. But now when trouble strikes you, you lose heart. You're terrified when it touches you. Doesn't your reverence for God give you confidence? Doesn't your life of integrity give you hope? Stop and think. Do the innocent die? When have the upright been destroyed? My experience shows that those who plant trouble and cultivate evil will have us the same. Now, according to to, uh, Jeremiah chapter 49, Eliphaz's hometown was not only a a trading city, but it was a place of wisdom. And um, Eliphaz claimed that the wisdom that he had was given by special revelation from God. Sounds familiar? You listen to some of those programs today and you have people saying that, right? And... um, Chapter 4 verse 12. Look at these verses. This truth was given to me in secret as though whispered in my ear. It came to me in in a disturbing vision at night when people are in a deep sleep. Fear gripped me and my bones trembled. A spirit swept past my face and my hair stood on edge. The spirit stopped, but I couldn't see its shape. There was a form before my eyes. In the silence, I heard a voice say, can a mortal be innocent before God? Can anyone be pure before the Creator? He attributed his source of wisdom to observing the experiences of life. So if you ask him where his wisdom comes from, he said, My wisdom comes from observing all of the things of life. And experiencing the things of life. And so his advice to Job was based on his confident first-hand knowledge of all that he experienced and observed during his lifetime. No, it didn't come from God. It came from his experiences. But then he had a strange attitude towards God too. His attitude toward God was that he had personally observed how God works and had figured him out. Do you know anybody who figured God out? But that's what he believes. That was his attitude towards God. As we will see that Job's attitude was completely different. He told Job that sin is what brings suffering, the kind of suffering that he was experiencing, that he was going through. And all Job had to do was simply confess his sin and put a stop, an end to his suffering. Boy, that's comforting, isn't it? Really comforting. See, Eliphaz believed that suffering was God's punishment, and it should be embraced by the sinner because it has a way of bringing them closer to God. No doubt this was true in some cases, but it certainly wasn't wasn't true in Job's case. In fact, the Bible tells us that is true in Galatians chapter six, verse seven and eight. Uh, Do not be misled, you cannot mock the justice of God, Paul says. You will always have as what you plant. Those who live only to satisfy their own sinful nature will harvest decay and death from that sinful nature. But those who live to please the Spirit will harvest life, everlasting life from the Spirit. So part of what Eliphaz said was true. But it didn't apply to Job. It was true scripturally. But it wasn't true in Job's life. Eliphaz made some truthfully valid points. He also made some wrong assumptions. One of them was he assumed that good people who are innocent will never suffer. And the devil will tell you that all the time. Don't believe him. He's a liar. He also assumed that people who suffer are being punished for their sins. And then he assumed that the reason why Job was suffering was because Job had had some sinful deeds. Had committed some sinful deeds before God. And God was dealing with him. In other words, they were saying to Job, yeah, your deed's catching up with you. Fess up. And you'll find that all of Job's friends were saying the same thing. Well, he was right about the punishment for those who encourage sin and troublemaking. He was right about that. But he was definitely wrong that no suffering comes to good people. He was wrong about that. So what lesson do we learn from this experience? While everything recorded in scripture is there by God's sovereign choice. It does not mean that some of the things people said and did are good examples to follow. God's divinely inspired word records the sins and evil thoughts of some really, really wicked people. You read the scriptures, you'll see that. As well as some misconceptions about God, as we see here in the book of Job. But it does not mean that we should follow such wrong examples just because they're in the Bible. You know, there are people who look at, the, read the Bible, and they do exactly what the Bible says, and it may not apply. Little church up in Tennessee, people in there believed in worshiping. I've been worshiped with big rattlesnakes. So you go to that church, you'll find them in these big five foot, six foot long rattlesnakes and they're dancing around. They're worshiping God. And this fellow went up there one time and he saw it and said, it's, it's the most astounding thing he'd ever seen in his life. And so he said, he asked the pastor, why did they do this? And the, Bible, the pastor said, the Bible says, you shall take up the serpent and they will not bite you. And the the fellow said, well, you know, when I was coming here, I noticed some pictures on the wall with all these people in coffins. Who were they? Pastor said, well, those are the ones who took up the serpent and lost their faith. Not everything in the Bible means that we should follow it. There are many teachings and examples in the Bible for for us that we should and should not do. Using our own experiences as a basis of making false assumptions about other people, like the remarks of Eliphaz, are an example of what we should extremely strive to, to avoid. Don't do it. This truth was given to me in secret, he, he says, Eliphaz says about his wisdom. As though whispered in my ear, it came to me in a disturbing vision at night when people are in a deep sleep. Now, even though he claimed that what he got was divinely inspired, it's obvious that it didn't come from God. You see, Satan can give that kind of stuff too. It didn't come from God. As we'll see in... in uh, well, we won't see it because we're not going to get that far. But in chapter 42, God criticized... <laughs> no, we're not going to get that far. In chapter 42, he, God criticized... Eliphaz and, and his friends were misrepresenting him in some of the things that they said. They said some things about God, God, and God, if God would have answered them right right, right away, God would say, Mm-mm, that's not true of me. But God did condemn them. But let's move on quickly, um, because our time is rapidly going. The next lesson that we find in this from this in, in, in Joe's myst- mysteries of suffering is because it's easy for people with good intentions to start off with the truth of God's word, but then go off on a tangent, we should avoid limiting God to man's point of view and partial understandings of life. And this is what Job's friends did uh, with regards to him. And then with verse 8, chapter 8, verse 1, Then Bindad the Shuhite answered, the next friend, How long will you say things and the words of your mouth be a mighty wind? Does God pervert justice, or does the Almighty pervert what is right? If your sons sinned against Him, then He delivered them into the power of their transgression. Ouch! You realize what He's saying here. If you would seek God and implore the compassion of the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, surely now He would you, you, He would rouse Him, sell for you. And restore your righteous estate. Now, Bildad had a different perspective from his other friend. His wisdom was inherited from the past and considered trustworthy second-hand knowledge. And so his advice to Job was based on the traditional Proverbs and some of the things that he quoted to people all the time. And his, his attitude towards God was that those who have gone before us figured God out. And all we have to do is simply use that knowledge. So he agreed with his other friend that we all figured God out. So all you got to do is follow what we do. Bildad was upset about how Job was questioning God's justice while failing to confess his sins, while still claiming to be innocent. He was upset about that. The justice of God was the basis of his argument. And while he was correct about the idea... Of God's justice. He was not about Job. Bildad argued that God could not be unjust. And that God would never punish a person who is just. So Job must be unjust. Because he's being punished. Eliphaz also made the wrong assumptions that people who suffer only because of their sins. That was another assumption that he made that was wrong. But he was even more insensitive and uncompassionate about saying that it was because of their wickedness that Job's children died. In fact, he probably would have thought, "Boy, these children always partying, always partying." And and, and and then, after all this partying and carousing, then the daddy got to go and offer burnt offering for them. That was probably his reasoning behind the statement that he made—that they died because of their wickedness making assumptions that were not correct, but mostly insensitive. Remember now, they're supposed to be comforting Job. Someone would think, boy, if they were his friends, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to see what his enemies had to say or do. Uh, chapter 8, verse 14, whose confidence is fragile and whose trust, a spider's web, he trusts in his house, but it does not stand. He holds fast to it, but it does not endure. Bildad made the assumption that Job was not trusting in God for security but he was trusting in something else and whatever he was trusting it was about to collapse and he says you ain't seen nothing yet you think your troubles just start wait is what he was saying because one of the basic needs of people is security to feel secure many people do just about anything to get it sooner or later their money possessions knowledge and relationships will fall short and just disappear And so the lesson we learn here is that God is the only source of lasting security. What are you trusting in for your security? What is it? How long can it last? Feelings of insecurity will never undermine, will never undermine you if you have a secure foundation in God. Get rid of those things that you're trusting in is the lesson we learn from this. Though I am righteous, my mouth will condemn me. Though I am guiltless, he will declare me guilty. I am guiltless. I do not notice myself. I do not take notice of myself. I despise my life. So you see now, Joe's prolonged suffering was taking a toll on his patience. He was suffering so much that he's now becoming impatient. Even though his loyalty to God remained firm and intact. He said some things that he would later regret that God had to, had to speak to him about. Or chastise him for. The lesson, when pain and sickness linger on, people naturally gain, begin to doubt and become miserable, resulting in impatience. What they need most in such times is someone to listen to them and help them walk through their feelings and frustrations. What they need is, their, their, their impatience needs your patience, is what is needed. Because I am disgusted with my life, Job says. My bitter soul must complain. I will say to God, don't simply condemn me. Tell me the charge you are bringing against me. What do you gain by oppressing me? Why do you reject me? me, The work of your own hands while smiling on the schemes of the wicked. See, when we experience mysterious suffering, our pain have a tendency to push us toward feeling sorry for ourselves. And we begin to engage in this great big pity party for ourselves. And so Job started to wallow in self-pity. When we reach this point, we need to be careful that the the, the next step is that we are a step away from self-righteousness. Where we start keeping track of all the wrongs that have been done in our lives and thinking about how unfair it is of what's happening to us. The lesson, remember that whether allowed by God or said by God, life's trials can be a way for us to be developed and refined. Instead of asking, who did this to me? And how can I put a stop to it? What we can learn is how to grow through this experience in our lives. Then Zophar, his next friend, the Namathite, replied to Job. Should someone answer this torrent of words? Is a person proved innocent just by a lot of talking? Should I remain silent while you babble on? When you mock God, shouldn't someone make you ashamed? You claim my beliefs are pure and I am clean in the sight of God. If only God can speak, if only he could tell you what he thinks. Now this third friend of, of Job, Zophar, was he was the most arrogant of the three. He believed wisdom belonged to the wise. His advice was based on no other sources but his own. In other words, he believed that he was the wisest person who ever lived, and he didn't need to get wisdom from anybody else because his own was sufficient. His attitude towards God was uh was God, his attitude towards God was the wise know what God is like. But there are not many of us around. So we see how arrogant he was, even in his attitude toward God. And he was the least courteous of the three. He unleashed his full fury of anger on Job by saying that Job deserved more punishment than he was getting. Talk about comfort. Comfort. He agreed with his other friends about suffering because of sin, but he was far more arrogant in his comments. He was the kind of person who always had an answer to everything, but he was totally and completely insensitive to the extent of Job's suffering. For he knows those who are false, he says, and he takes note of their sins. An empty headed person won't blame, won't become wise any more than a wild donkey could bear a human child. If only you would prepare your heart and lift up your hands to to him in prayer, get rid of your sins and leave all your niquity behind you. So all of these men were thinking that Job had done some, some atrocious sin, and he was now reaping the consequences. He was reaping what he had sowed you accuse Job of hiding secret sins by calling them false. In other words, he's calling Job a hypocrite. What's the lesson here? Too often, we are tempted to think, no one will ever know because I'm so good at hiding my sins from others. But there's nothing, absolutely nothing we do that God doesn't know about. The Bible tells us he knows our thoughts. So don't you think he's going to notice your sins too? If he knows your thoughts, do you think our sins are going to escape him? As for me, I would speak directly to the Almighty. I want to argue my case before God Himself. As for you, you smear me with lies. Physicians, are you worthless quacks? If only you could be silent, that's the wisest thing you could do. Wouldn't you agree? Silence would probably have been so good to Job at this time. He called some doctors who didn't know what they were doing. Can you imagine a surgeon, an eye surgeon trying to do heart surgery? They said a lot of things about God that were true, but they had nothing to do with Job's circumstances. But when they assumed that Job's suffering was just punishment for a sin, they were wrong. They applied true principle in the wrong way, and many people do that today. The lesson we learn here, we must exercise caution and demonstrate compassion in how we apply biblical condemnation to others. It means simply being slow when it comes to judging other people in their suffering. Now we may not do what Job's friends did to Job's face, but some of us do it behind their backs. When we see the extent of a friend's suffering, we we don't say it to their face, but we go behind their back and say, boy I know, see what he, how he was living, we can catch up with him sooner or later." Job's friends were doing it to his face. We do it behind their backs. They suffer painfully. Their life is full of trouble. Job's insightful words in this chapter show us some great truths. We can't read the whole chapter for the sake of time, but here are some of the truths. It's not enough just to have the right set of doctrines. Pleasing God requires more than knowing what we believe. And truth becomes motionless and stagnant. When it is not tested by the experiences of life, like Job was being tested. So the lesson here, an active quality of life can be gained by suffering. In the same way that the roots of a tree are driven deeper in order to find water during the times of drought, suffering has a way of driving the sufferer past shallow acceptance of truth to be more fully dependent on God for hope and life. In other words, many people quote the scriptures, but they don't go to the extent of, of believing what the scripture says. That's what we mean by shallow acceptance of the truth. But as we move on quickly, and we're going to close in a, in a minute. Then Joe spoke again. I have heard all this before. What miserable comforters you are. Won't you ever stop blowing hot air? What makes you keep talking? I could say the same things if you were in my place. I could spout off criticism and, make, and shake my head at you. But if it were me, I would encourage you. I would try to take away your grief. Isn't that what they came for? Job was finally hitting the nail on the head. Instead of comforting Job in his grief, they, as they were supposed to do, Job's friends were criticizing him for causing his own pain and misery. Job called his friends miserable comforters. That's what they were. And so this is the final lesson we learn as we close. If you know someone who is suffering, suffering or going through suffering, Job offers some suggestions on how we can become better comforters to them. Don't talk just for talking's sake. Don't answer by sermonizing. Job's friends did a lot of sermonizing here. Don't blame or criticize as they did. Put yourself in the sufferer's positions as they should have done. Offer help and encouragement as they should have done. Remember that Job's suggestions are given by a person who suffered deeply and needed deep, great comfort. The best comforters are those who know about suffering from personal experience. And so as we think about the disaster of suffering in the book of Job, it's a sobering reminder for us. That we live in a fallen world where good behavior is, always, is often rewarded and bad behavior is not always punished. When we see the criminal element thriving as we see today in all the criminality that's going on all around us. Or innocent children suffering. We talk about how wrong it is. And it is wrong. But that's how sin has twisted justice and made our world such an unpredictable and really Atrociously ugly place to live. In the book of Job we see a good man who suffered terribly. For absolutely nothing that he had done wrong. It's the depressing state of our world. It's the world that we live in. And I've got some bad news for you. It's not going to get any better. But despair is not the end of the story. Job's life teaches us that. Even when our situations look hopeless, faith in God is justified. It always is. Faith based on rewards or prosperity is empty. Faith must be built on the assurance that God's ultimate purpose will come to pass. It will be realized if it is to be unshakable. And our faith ought to be unshakable at all times. Not just in the good times. And so the message today was a reminder for us. Some of these things we already know. It's a reminder for us that Job's suffering was not only a test, but also a revealer of character intended to instruct us, to educate us, and to actually teach us as Christians how to die to self. What have you learned from Job about the mystery of suffering today? How have you been instructed and educated on how you must die to save? to self based on what Job experienced how will what Job said to you today impact your life as you move forward from this day will Monday be a different day because of Job's knowing what Job's experience was and how you can learn lessons from it I trust that it will be shall we pray Father we thank you for The lesson that you've given us today or lessons. And we know, Lord, that there are many we can apply to our lives. I know there are many I can apply to mine. And we pray, Lord, that as we leave here today, we may remember those lessons. And that our faith indeed would be strengthened as we move forward. That we may honor you rather than bring reproach to your name when sufferings come into our lives. This we ask in Christ's name. And all God's people said, the Lord bless you and make you a blessing for him.